Amy Carmichael was a missionary uh, to India in the 19th and 20th century. And she once wrote a poem uh, on the theme of suffering and more specifically on the theme of persecution. Uh, That is suffering for being a Christian, suffering for being a follower of Christ. And this is the poem that she wrote. Have you no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear you sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail you as your bright ascendant star. But have you no scar? Have you no wounds? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent, leaned me against a tree to die and rent. By ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Have you no wounds, no wounds, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But yours are whole, can he have followed far, who has no wounds nor scar. She wrote that poem as though the words of Christ speaking to someone who follows him or professes to follow him, asking the question, do you have a scar? Uh, What has following me, Christ says, cost you? Has it cost you anything? And it picks up on the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, where Paul wrote, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Paul says it's inevitable. Uh, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, and if you want to follow Christ faithfully, then persecution is going to come your way. People are not going to like things you say, things you do. They may ridicule, they may abuse, or worse. You know, some people um, boast about not having any enemies, as though that is a good thing. And it's true, we can sometimes make enemies unnecessarily. But too often... If you don't have any enemies, it often betrays the fact that you probably have no character either. You have no enemies because you never stand for anything. You never make any, have any opposition because you never have, say, anything worth opposing by anyone. It too often describes a weak person rather than a good one. And in this section of 1 Peter, uh, Peter particularly focuses on this issue of persecution. In many ways, this whole letter is about how as Christians we endure suffering of various sorts. Uh, The letter started with Peter talking to believers who are going through uh, manifold trials, various different trials and difficulties and tribulations. But in these verses, he focuses particularly 
on the suffering of persecution. Suffering specifically because you are a Christian, because you are a follower of Christ. And that is the theme of these verses. And he tells us uh, three things about persecution. Three realities that we should keep in mind uh, as we endure suffering as a Christian. And the first thing he says is we shouldn't see persecution as a strange thing. Look at verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing had happened to you. Again, he repeats essentially what Paul said in the verse we quoted earlier. Persecution is inevitable. It's going to happen. They persecuted Christ, so they're going to persecute those who follow Christ, because a servant is not greater than his master. So what happened to Christ, similar things are likely to happen to us. As Christ suffered before his resurrection, so we must suffer before our resurrection. And the most obvious way to show this, actually, is from the fact that we die at all. Have you ever wondered that? If you're a believer here this morning, have you ever wondered, why do Christians still have to die? After all, the Bible says that if you're trusting in Christ, your sin is forgiven. Jesus paid for it on the cross. There is no sin for us to pay anymore because it's all been dealt with and washed away. In that case, then, why do we have to die, which is a penalty of sin? It doesn't seem to make sense, does it? But the Bible makes clear that although we are forgiven, though we are washed inwardly, we are new creatures, the Bible says, we're still in this body. And the Bible describes this body as a body of sin. Uh, Our bodies are fallen. They are not what they should be, and they're not what they one day will be. Uh, It's, if you like, riddled with sin. We still battle temptation. We still battle the lusts of our flesh, of our bodies. And that reality will be with us until we die. Uh, Our bodies must die. That's unavoidable. We cannot enter heaven in our sinful, unchanged state. But what Jesus' death accomplished was making a way through death. Uh, Jesus' death on the cross didn't save us from physical death. What it did was made a way from the grave to life. It made a resurrection to life possible. That's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. We all die. Christian or non-Christian, whatever religion, whatever we are, whoever we are, we all have to face death. But for the believer, there's a path beyond. There's a path through. That's what uh, Peter refers to when he says uh, at the end in verse 17, He says, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, 
what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? Uh, Peter says to believers, we have to suffer. And in many ways, Christians might even suffer more than unbelievers because of their testimony for Christ. And believers, like unbelievers, will also face death. But believers will go through death. That's why it says, if the righteous one is scarcely saved. We all have to pass through the fires of death, believe and unbeliever alike, but the believer is raised with Christ, and we have a resurrection to look forward to. I didn't put this in my notes, but just ponder that for a moment. Uh, I don't know what pain uh, you're experiencing at the moment. Uh, perhaps you battle ongoing illness, uh, ongoing uh, difficulty because of some injury or some uh, grief and heartache that you have and you wrestle with the body you have. But the Bible says for the believer, it's not forever. You might feel it sometimes, but it's not. Your body will one day be laid in the grave, but it'll be raised. You'll be renewed. It will be restored. Perfect. Whatever pain you experience now, if you're a believer, if you're trusting in Christ, is always temporary. It's the wonderful hope that we have if we are a believer. And that transforms all suffering now. That transforms our understanding of persecution now. If we understand that one day we'll be raised, one day we'll have a new body, an eternal body, which will never suffer pain and anguish anymore, then we can see suffering now in proper perspective. There was once a a Christian called Eusebius who was uh, threatened by the emperor Valens, uh, obviously back in the early 1st, 2nd, 3rd centuries. And uh, the emperor Valens threatened him with the confiscation of all his goods, of torture, of banishment, or even death, if he did not renounce Christ. But Eusebius responded with these words. He said, he needs not fear confiscation, who has nothing to lose nor banishment to whom heaven is his country, nor torments when his body can be destroyed at one blow, nor death, which is the only way to set him at liberty from sin and sorrow. What he was saying to the emperor was, there's nothing you can take away from me. You might confiscate my goods, but I don't live for my goods anyway. My riches are in heaven. He says, you might banish me, but my home isn't on earth. My home is in heaven. So what will banishing me do? You can't banish me from there. Uh, You might afflict me. You might torment me. But death for me is just the entrance to glory. And he said to this emperor, there's nothing you can do to harm me. Because his eye was fixed on the resurrection, on a new hope, a different hope. That's what Peter reminds us of in these verses. He says, don't count persecution strange. 
Don't think something unusual has happened to us. Instead, fix your eye on the resurrection. But he goes further than that. Uh, He doesn't just say that our resurrection transforms our view of suffering. He actually says something which seems almost unbelievable. Look at verse 13. I'll read from verse 12 to give the context. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Peter doesn't just say that suffering... uh, we can view suffering differently because there's a resurrection coming. He says that even our present suffering now is a blessing from God. You think, how can that be? How can suffering be a blessing? We all know it's not enjoyable. None of us want to suffer. None of us want to be ridiculed. None of us want to endure pain or difficulty or hardship. And yet, Peter says, rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering. Even in 14, he says, if you are reproached, if you are rebuked, if you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, blessed are you. You're blessed. It is a blessing. It is a gift from God. And that sounds very strange to our ears because we so often see suffering as always bad and of course the bible appreciates god appreciates that suffering is never good in the sense that it's painful and it's hard nevertheless god has purposes in it which are a blessing now first of all Suffering reveals the genuineness, or otherwise, of our faith. When we're persecuted, what it demonstrates is, are we truly trusting in Christ or not? Um, I remember talking to someone in Edinburgh last year um, at the Beach Mission Christian Answer uh, team in the street there. And I met one girl, um, not a believer, but she... Um, had uh, been reading her uh, Bible and and had been seeking Christ. And she was in a very difficult situation, very painful situation. And she prayed for Jesus to remove this difficult situation. And he didn't. Uh, She remained suffering. And she told us that she lost what faith she had at that moment. But do you see, however much we might sympathize with her in her suffering, she failed the test. Because for her, she wasn't really looking for Christ. She was looking for relief from the difficult situation she was in. Christ was the tool to fix that problem, but she didn't really want Christ himself. That is what suffering tests in our life. That's what persecution tests in our life. If when persecution comes, we immediately renounce Christ 
and we ditch him and say, if this is what Christianity is and I don't want anything to do with it, then we show that we don't really want Christ at all. What we want is ease and comfort and plenty. Persecution tests what we really want. And that is a blessing. It's a blessing to have revealed to us what our heart really is. Far better to learn that now than to learn it on Judgment Day. It's a blessing to have that test to see, do we really want Christ or merely good things that he gives to us? But secondly, persecution itself glorifies God. If we endure persecution and, and someone ridicules us for being a Christian and, or someone causes us some sort of pain for being a Christian and we don't renounce Christ, if we continue to hold on to him and we say to whoever it is persecuting us, whatever you do to me, I'll still trust him, that brings great glory to God because it tells everyone watching on that God is better than whatever we are losing in that moment. Does that make sense? If we cling to Christ, even at great cost, we're revealing that we know that God is better than whatever the thing is we are losing. Reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you remember them? In the Old Testament, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, commanded everyone to worship a golden statue. Uh, when the music played and sure enough as soon as the music played everyone bows down obediently to the idol except Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and in fury Nebuchadnezzar has them hauled before him and he says if you do not worship my statue I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego respond to Nebuchadnezzar And they say, our God is able to save us, even from the fiery furnace. But whether he does or whether he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to your statue. We're going to hold firm to God, whether he saves us or not. And that attitude brings great glory to God to cling to him even through suffering. As Job said in the book of Job, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. So that's the second reason. reason, uh, Persecution is a blessing. It can bring great glory to God. But thirdly, it also brings glory to us. Now, we often don't talk about this. We don't really like the idea of glorifying us. That seems quite proud, doesn't it? It sounds kind of wrong. Uh, We give all the glory to God, don't we? We don't take glory for ourselves. But nevertheless, that is what the Bible teaches. Look again at verse 14. It says, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. There is a reward for us if we endure persecution. Um, There's a story, not true as you'll see in a second, 
which goes that there was a lady, a Christian lady, who died and went to heaven. And she walked the streets of gold and she saw uh, wonderful mansions towering all around her. And they had wonderful tapestries and golden porches and many stories reaching up to the sky with uh, beautiful uh, leafy gardens. And with great anticipation, uh, she wondered what would her mansion be like? What would her home in heaven be like? And an angel took her round the final corner to show her a small wooden shack. And the angel indicated it was hers. And she couldn't hide her disappointment. And the angel responded, I'm sorry, we did the best with what we were given. Now, to be very, very clear, heaven is a gift from God. We do not earn heaven. The only reason any of us will ever be in heaven is because Jesus died for us and rose again for our salvation. All our hope rests in him. Without him, we have no hope of heaven. But the Bible does speak of reward. Uh, There are degrees of enjoyment even in heaven. Heaven is a gift. But there is reward in heaven. There are degrees of reward in heaven. Let me just give one example of that. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27 says, The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. The Bible says that some Christians are saved and forgiven, and they don't build on what Christ has given to them. And so they have little in heaven. Others, however, build much from what Christ has given to them, and their reward is great in heaven. Didn't Jesus himself say, when people persecute you, rejoice in that day because why? Because great is your reward in heaven. If we testify to Christ on earth, that has a direct effect on what heaven will be like for us. I'll say it again. Heaven is a gift. Don't think you can earn heaven. The only way to heaven is through Christ. But if you have been given the gift of heaven, how we live in this life will have an effect on what heaven will be like for us. And that should be an incentive for us to stay firm and true and faithful in life. That's the third reason persecution is a blessing. It, if you like, gives us the opportunity to lay up treasure in heaven. What we lose on earth will be more than made up for in heaven. You might notice on the front of your service sheet I put a verse from first, uh, Second Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul writes, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Don't lay up treasure on earth. Lay up treasure in heaven. 
But that leads to the third and last thing that Peter explains to us about persecution. Uh, We've seen that Peter says that we shouldn't view persecution as a strange thing. It's going to happen to us to some extent or another if we are a believer. Secondly, we've learned that persecution is actually a blessing in the hands of God to us. But lastly, Peter gives a warning. He warns it is possible to suffer at the hands of others for not good reasons, for bad reasons. Look at verse 15. It says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Peter here gives a little caveat. uh, Because there are people who... Uh, I think we'd call it today people with uh, persecution complexes. Do you know what I mean? Uh, People who are apt to say that they're being persecuted by people around them. And they suffer at the hands of others and they say, poor me, I am a victim. I am suffering because I am a Christian or for some other reason. But Peter warns us it is possible to suffer at the hands of others, not because we're a victim, not because we are a Christian, not for a good reason, but for a bad one. Might be because we are, as he puts it, a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. Some people may not like you simply because you're unlikable. Some people might abuse you because you are obnoxious. Some people might afflict you at work or at school or in other places because your behaviour rubs them up the wrong way. And Peter says, don't rejoice in that suffering. That's not the sort of suffering I'm talking about. I'm talking about suffering because you are a believer, because you're testing me for Christ. Look at verse uh, 16. He says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Peter isn't saying that we should rest easy being an obnoxious person or being a a bad listener, or being self-centred, or always talking about ourselves. All these things will earn you the dislike of others around you. I'm sure we've all experienced that to some extent in our lives. And Peter says, don't flatter yourself. That's something that we need to deal with. That's sin in our lives which we need to address. Not rejoice in, but repent of. It doesn't glorify God, and it doesn't work for our good. In fact, it does the opposite. And we should examine ourselves. We should examine ourselves, is that us? If we are suffering some sort of affliction from others, whatever that might be, we should honestly ask ourselves, is it because of me, or is it because of Christ? And don't just ask yourself. um, Ask other people. Ask people you trust and who love you. Ask them what they think. Is the suffering that you're experiencing, again, at work or in, at home or 
uh, at school or wherever it might be. Ask other people, is it because of you or is it because of Christ? It's a good question to ask. And if it is because of your bad behaviour, if it is because you are rubbing people up the wrong way because of sin in you, don't despair. Don't give up. Repent and accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers and accept the Holy Spirit who is able to change us and make us more like Christ. But if it is persecution, if people hate you simply because you love Christ, because you follow him and you want to do what he says, then Peter says, rejoice, be glad, great is your reward in heaven. Again, verse 6, if anyone suffers a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Whatever suffering we, suffering we endure for being a Christian, it will not last forever. It will not be for all time. It will only be for a small fraction of our existence. And then in glory, we'll enjoy Christ for all eternity. And trustfully, that puts suffering, especially persecution, in perspective for all of us. And with those thoughts in mind, I've chosen as our final hymn number 644. Uh, 644. How vast the treasure we possess, how rich thy bounty, King of grace. This world is ours and worlds to come. Earth is our lodge and heaven our home. And I've chosen it particularly uh, for verse 3. Uh, it says, If peace and plenty crown my days, they help me, Lord, to speak thy praise. If bread of sorrows be my food, those sorrows work my lasting good. So let's stand to sing in closing 644.